Welcome back, Ford Explorers. Before we get into this week's episode, I want to remind you that we have a Twitter, we have an Instagram, and we have a Patreon if you want to support us and get a subliminal shout-out. Most importantly, we have our hotline. Typically, we tell you a story, but we want you to tell us a story. So call or text us at the hotline, leave us your story, and enjoy this week's episode. See ya! Welcome back, Ford Explorers. I'm the Colonel. This is Caleb. If this is your first time joining us, welcome to the Acid Cat Spirit Hour. We're very happy to have you. This is a podcast where me and my son sort of talk about all the weird mysteries in the past, present, and future. Uh, But before we do that, every week we like to do a little ghost report. We're big ghost fans around here. And while our podcast is largely about mysteries, we also like to do a little ghost hunting. And I happen to own a little haunted bar that Caleb is the chef at. And uh, we like to do a weekly ghost report. So, Caleb, would you like to hit him with a ghost report for the week? Yeah. So, uh, big news on the ghost front with this week's ghost report. Um, one of our newest hires, she's been with us for a couple months now. She pulled me aside yesterday and she's like, I think the ghosts have finally accepted that I'm a member of this team. And I was like, what do you mean? She goes, I saw one today. Finally. Oh, did she really? Yep. Awesome. So, so CC finally saw one of the ghosts. Congratulations, CC. Um, but other than that, it's been a pretty tame week. Uh, we've all seen the lady with the long hair a couple of times, just out of the corner of our eyes. Uh, the lights have been honestly pretty tame. Um, if this is your first episode, the lights will constantly change colors, especially when I show up for work. Yeah, and I've changed them out. It's not the string. It's not the, like, there's something else going on. And uh, this week, the lights have been pretty tame. They've stayed, which is another another anomaly because people are like, well, uh, they use a remote, so it might be the key fobs from people parking their cars because there's a parking lot right next to it. Yeah. Downtown has been super busy, yeah, and they haven't changed all week. They also pretty reliably change when they do change, to be clear. Like, they change when you show up for work. Yeah. Almost every single day they change when you show up for work, and that's not something, it's nothing, there's no interference with your car because it's not, you know, you and I have shown up before for different things. We've, this has been extensively means tested. Yes. Yeah, the the lights are a pretty good indicator that something wonky is going on. Well, that's fun. Is that was there anything else other than CC's inauguration into the We Have a Haunted Bar Club? Um, a couple of customers just said they felt uh, like someone watching them, and um, but we, that was just you. <laughs> I was like, yeah, because you guys are being dicks. I'm making sure you don't break anything. No, um, and then we had uh, someone's glass fall off the bar top. Nice, which is pretty. It, it's a lesser common one, but it happens every so often. Uh, you'll just have someone sitting there with a glass. And, I mean, it is halfway in the bar, so, like, it's not, like, it's sitting on the edge Yeah, and you know off. what the fucked up thing is, is I've had people be like, well, is it just... Because, you know, if you, a water gets under a glass, a glass can move. Mm. But it was like, that works, that's true, if it's, like, a nice marble or, like, a, even a fake marble. or One continuous flat surface. Our bar top is made out of 200-year-old uh, 1x12s yeah. that go like this... Because uh, they got ghosts in them, yeah. So I would, I would find it. I've seen it. I mean, we've been sitting there before and watched a glass just slide off in front of a person and land in their lap. Mm-hmm. And 
it goes over the border of a board. You know what I mean? Like if it was slipstreaming on the counter, it would just it would there would have to be no interruptions. So yeah. that doesn't work if there's like a bunch of levels and then a break in the surface. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's something else is going on. Plus we've seen glasses explode. Mm-hmm. We've seen them just shatter. And not, you know, again, we've been doing the bar thing for a long time. I know the thermal qualities of glass and I know what will cause them to break when they're hot and cold. And that's not what happened here. This this thing just broke on its own Yeah, it was there. just sitting in the middle of a table. Yeah. No one touching it or anything. Nobody was paying attention to it, so it decided to break. Well, that's our haunted little bar. Uh, I extend this invitation with pretty much every episode if I remember to. But if you'd like to come do some ghost hunting, leave us a, a comment. I'd be more than happy to open the bar up to you and let you come do a little ghost hunt and see if you can't find a poltergeist or two in there. Because every other person who doesn't come looking for a ghost manages to find one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of the hospitality industry and speaking of ghosts, uh, today we're going to talk about a ghost that co- sort of lives with us. Yeah. Somebody who, uh, a little background, a little behind the curtain background, I am a a trained, I I shouldn't say chef, because I never was really a chef as a line cook and stuff, but I am trained as a culinary professional. You are an actual trained chef. Uh, and Anthony Wardane is a person who was important to both of us. Yes. You know, he was a counterculture figure who was important in showing the world. I think now there's a little bit of cynicism that even I'm guilty of that, you know, the influence that he had has caused us to sort of uh, take the world for granted. You know, now I think through the work of somebody like Bourdain, unfortunately, now somebody can eat pad thai and be like, well, I, I've had pad thai. I know what the Thai people are like. Yeah, yeah it's created kind of uh, uh, an opposite effect, I think, maybe than what he was going for. Because Anthony was also one of the realest dudes around. He really was from the kitchen. That's what originally got everybody's attention. You know, he wrote Kitchen Confidential and... That book wrote about what we all really know about the kitchen. Anybody, you know, people read that book and they're like, it's crazy to think that in the 80s people did heroin and cocaine in kitchens. Well, they still do. Your tacos yeah. were made by somebody who was under the influence of somebody, of something, I promise. I, uh, just four years ago when I was, uh, the, like, I was one of the lower, lower tier managers at a pizza place. I had to fire a guy because he was... Coked out in the middle of the day. It was a mid-shift. Mm-hmm. It was 4 p.m. Well, that's guy... why he was coked out. He was yeah. hungover. Uh, it was 4 p.m. Trigger warning. If drug use bothers you, I don't know how the fuck you found our show, if drug use bothers you, but we're going to talk about it a lot today. Yes. Uh, we are also, we should get this ahead. Before yes. we start having fun and talking about back-of-house stuff, we are going to talk about Anthony Bourdain's uh, suicide today. So trigger warning for self-harm, suicide, depression, all that sort of stuff. We are, are we were setting the table to say that we are also uh, kitchen people, which means that we... Um, much like any kitchen person who's going to watch this, Brandon, uh, you will be empathetic with Anthony's plight a little bit more than I think the normal person is. Yeah. We understand what it's like to be depressed and to work these difficult jobs and be treated like shit. And we've also worked at the highest end. I've met Anthony Bourdain. I met him right before he died. And we'll talk about that in the episode, but this is our world. So it's going to be a little bit more personal than the average podcast is. We're not just talking about alien abductions. We're talking about the thing that I've done for 15 years and that you've dedicated your life to. So I say that like that hasn't been my entire adult life that I dedicated it to. So this is a thing that we are a little closer to. So just keep that in mind as you're listening to the podcast that we do have a tremendous amount of reverence for Anthony. We understand his his place in the business very, very well. It had a huge influence on us and what we were able to accomplish. I mean, I followed his path so tightly that, like I said, we ended up meeting at some point. Yeah. That means that I saw that guy and I was like, yeah, that. And for a long time, I was quick to sort of um, call him a sellout and call him that sort of shit because I was a punk. And I was, you know, as 
I know what it is to be a New York punk and to be a chef at the same time and do that sort of thing. That's my life. And I, I don't know. I think I was a little unfair to him. Yeah. And I kind of, I think part of my desire to make this podcast is I would, I think I owe him an apology. Yeah. I didn't get to give it to him when I met him. So I feel like I owe him one now, but yeah, so we're going to talk about uh, what happened to Anthony. If he killed himself, we are going to speculate on that. So if that bothers you, I understand you wanting to listen to something else. Maybe we are going to speculate on that because there are a couple too many um, contributing factors that leave a few doors open. Yes. Yeah. We, it would be irresponsible of us as um, well-established, or at least we like to think, conspiracy boys, well-versed conspiracy boys, to see something like this and not say, ah, there's a couple red flags here. They're, they're definite, uh, definite fingers pointed, and uh, when those fingers were pointed, everyone was like, eh. Yeah. And it's just, it's very strange, because it's, it's the same fingers that were being pointed at other people who claim to have killed themselves and people made a big Absolutely. Hubbub we can, about do we can say it? We can yeah. talk about Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah. Because we're gonna talk about Harvey Weinstein today and mm-hmm. we're gonna talk about the Clintons and we're gonna talk about a lot of that stuff. Now this is not a QAnon podcast, but this stuff does happen and these people really are bad people. It's not like the weird thing about Jeff Epstein is he's been rolled into a lot of this stuff like, you know, adrenochrome and some of these other like significantly less credible theories. But this one's real. He really did have an island. He really did take people there. He yeah. really did traffic humans. Like, this stuff really happened. And he probably didn't kill himself. We all have to be honest about that, the way that he died. Plus, I mean, the way that all these things tie together, there are a number of people. John McAfee that died uh, of suicide in a way that were questionable. Uh, who said that they wouldn't die of suicide? I guess Jesse Smollett most recently when he was <laughs> supposed to go to jail but didn't end up going to jail said that he was going to get suicided in there. But there unfortunately seems to be a um, a through line, a consistent narrative where uh, people who are within the orbit of some of these like larger entities like Weinstein that are implicated in these larger conspiracies that they did commit. I feel like, dude, if Weinstein could be sexually assaulting women in Hollywood the way that he did for, you know, the multiple decades that he did it and he kept himself safe, maybe not under wraps, you know, as an open secret, but he kept himself safe. What would stop him from also having the pull to take care of some loose ends? You think yeah. at some point now this is speculative, mind you, but you don't think at some point there was like some loose ends that needed to be tied up for Weinstein? You don't think he's ever had to do that before? Yeah. This uh, is Hollywood, guys. There, There is some some interesting ties that I found while doing discovery that I'll talk about later when we get into the actual conspiracy. Yeah, we, again, this is the thing we're very passionate about. So we're going to probably skip ahead a little bit more in this one. But before we do that, why don't you talk a little bit about who Tony was as a human being, how he grew up? Cause that gives you a good idea of his character. Yeah. Uh, so if you've never seen the show before, before we talk about the, the big issue, we talk about the people involved because when you're telling a story, if you skip past the people that are involved and who they were and how they were br- brought up, you're missing a whole side of the story. The whole context, you know, like uh, it, a square peg doesn't fit in a round hole because it's square. Well, that's its story, right? That's yeah. its identity. Unless to, we're talking about that one TikTok. Yeah, in which everything, <laughs> in which everything fits, into, fits into a square hole. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, Anthony Bourdain was born Anthony Michael Bourdain. Uh, he was born in Manhattan on June 25th, 1956. Uh, his mother was Gladys Saxman and his father was Pierre Bourdain. And he had a younger brother who was born a few years after he was. Uh, they were close for a while, but they kind of drifted apart. His brother, uh, Christopher. Yeah. But um, when his parents grew up, he lived with both of his parents. And in Kitchen Confidential and some of the other books that he wrote, 
he talked about his childhood, and he said he had a very nice childhood. Yeah, he said he never wanted for anything. His parents yep. were really sweet. Yeah, he, he was quoted as saying in one of his books, quote, I did not want for love or attention. My parents loved me. Neither of them drank to excess. Nobody beat me. And he said God was never mentioned, so I was never annoyed by neither church nor any notion of sin or damnation, which plays a whole lot into his um, outlook on life, and he talks about it later. And that is something I want everyone to remember, him saying that God was never a big part of his life, which I'll get into here in a little bit more, but that plays into the conspiracy a little bit more, which I'll get into later. But uh, he Wait, said, are you going to get into that later? I'll get into it later. I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just really covering my tracks. I'll yeah, we'll make a drinking game for that. So uh, his father was Catholic and his mother was Jewish. And by uh, Judaism, if your mother's Jewish, you're typically labeled as Jewish. Well, that's actually how it works. Yeah. 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 If, you're, if your mother's Jewish, so are you. Yeah. But ultimately, if your dad's Jewish, you are not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, th- one of my best friends growing up, his d- uh, father was Catholic and his mom was Jewish and he always joked, he had this saying that he would do, and he's like, you know, since I only have one parent who's Jewish, I'm not a full-blown Jew, I'm just Jewish. <laughs> but yeah, uh, I mean, I, I, there's a lot of East Coast folks that you're going to meet that have one Catholic family member and one Jewish family member. Yeah, um, so he said that uh, he never went to synagogue, and he doesn't believe in a higher power, but he says he doesn't think that makes him any less Jewish. No, no, and I also think that that... I think you can see that in the way that he behaves, right? Like yeah. he's a guy who we'll get into it. He eschew, we'll get into it later. Take a drink. Uh, he eschewed fame. He wasn't interested in it. He liked serving people. I mean, we all do, right? Like everybody. Uh, an important note as we're going into this, because we're going to talk about depression. We're going to talk about you know um, the desire to serve people and what drives us to do that. I want to make it abundantly clear. Every single one of us in the hospitality business has some sort of social issue. Every single mm-hmm. one of us. Everyone. Everyone. That's why we want to serve you. Because we think that we owe people a nice time or we owe them this stuff. And you're fucking... I mean, the people who go to restaurants and go to bars are very lucky that we feel that way. Because we, yeah. feel, we feel that you need us to do something for you. And we would feel bad if it didn't get done. Not everybody feels that way. And I think... For a lot of people, that comes from people who have been marginalized or people who feel like they haven't been able to make it. Poor people, right? Like, you grow up poor, you're going to end up working as a waitress. You're going to end up working as a server. You're going to end up maybe working in the kitchen, doing something like that. It's These are base-level jobs because they also serve people on the most base level. What I I think – sorry. Oh, I was just going to take a moment. If you've never worked in hospitality, whether that be in a restaurant, behind a bar, or even retail – I want to take this moment to say, be nicer to the people that do. Yeah, you have no idea how much it fucking sucks. You you don't own anybody. The 12 bucks or whatever that you're spending or the $12,000 that you're spending isn't worth anybody's time. Just always put yourself in their shoes. The thing, you know, we've been in the bar business and I've been in it for a long time. And the thing that I do is, you know, you'll get the woo guys, the guys that come in when the room's perfectly quiet. And they, woo! I'm not going to do that to our poor listeners. Yeah. But, you know, they'll woo at the top of their lungs. And those guys are trying to have fun. Fundamentally, what they're trying to do is enjoy themselves. However, what they've not taken into consideration is that there is at least a small group of people within this room who are at work right now. Yeah. They're at work right now. Imagine, you maybe you're listening to this podcast at work right now. Now imagine if where you were working, you had to sit next to and attend to a guy who is screaming woo in your face and asking you why you weren't having fun. Well, you, buddy, you're the reason I'm not having fun. You're annoying as fuck. In your tiny little world, this is fun. You're having a great party wherever you are, but we're at work. And that's especially true in the restaurant business because... Because at least in the bar business, we can cut people off. We can throw them out. We can interact with them. Or if it's nothing that severe, we can have like a nice discourse with them. When you work in the kitchen, 
you got one person you can speak to. It's your chef, or as most kitchens actually function, it's probably your GM. Yeah. And that person doesn't give a fuck unless you're working. Yeah. If you're not working, they don't care what your problem is. You can't come out of that kitchen. Every person who works in a kitchen still smokes. Every person who works in a kitchen is probably on some sort of upper, and a lot of them do shit to numb the pain. And I want to get into all of that. Or Yeah, it's important to say all that beforehand, because everybody who works in a kitchen who has for a few years knows what we just said and went, yeah, duh. Yeah. And everybody who hasn't has no fucking idea. It's the reason Kitchen Confidential was a best-selling novel. They don't know that it's still like that. Yeah. Nothing has changed. It's just as hard. And guess what, guys? It's not Coke anymore. It's meth now because it's cheaper and it's easier to come by. This is dangerous shit. So when we talk about him just being depressed, which is pe what people like to throw around and throw around substance use and stuff, I've heard a number of people say, well, you know, he was a heroin addict. Do you know what the fuck heroin does to you? It gives you a nice quiet release from a lot of pain and it grabs you by your brain and doesn't let go. It's not his fault. That's not how the shit works. So just know that this job is backbreaking. And yes, especially now, yeah. uh, this is a long tirade, but especially yeah. after 2020, if you go into a bar or a restaurant and you're anything other than nice and understanding and patient, fuck you. You don't get it. You don't understand what's going on. And I assure you, every person who's in that place working hates it way more than you do. None of us like being in the weeds. We would much rather everybody's taken care of, everybody's yep. happy. I do the job because it's fun as fuck. Because you get to you get to dance, you get to sing, you get to goof around with people, you get to have fun, you get to educate, you get to do be a master of something. Yeah. You know, but I think people forget that shit for sure. Well, it's just like last night, this is extremely topical. Last <laughs> night after last call, we we're five minutes till close. And these two dudes come in. And they do exactly that. They're just like, woohoo. And they sit down. And me and Megan, who's been on the show, just look at him. And we're like, no. <laughs> Not now, man. And they're like, can we get a drink? And we're like... We're five minutes to close. We've already done last call, and you came in screaming. Absolutely not. <laughs> and they're like, man, and they get up and leave. And it's like, to them, they didn't realize just how disrespectful every aspect of that. Yeah. I, you walked in three minutes before I get to leave here, screamed at me, and then basically told me I'm going to be disorderly, and you have to attend to me. Yeah. No, I don't, you adult child. Get the fuck out of my face. <laughs> and then got upset that I wouldn't serve you more alcohol. Yeah, <laughs> like, give me more alcohol and sugar so my behavior can worsen. Yeah, it's a, anyway, I guess, yeah, yeah, that's a little bit of a tangent from the two chefs in the house. But be fucking nice to the people who make your food. And don't fuck with them. They spit in it all the time. Don't play with them. They'll make it way worse, and you'll have no idea what's going on. Just don't play with chefs. Anyway, back to Tony Bourdain. Yeah, so um, when... I think that's just the, the spirit of him coming through us as we're doing this. Because he was pretty ca candid about the fact that he was like, I don't want anybody to talk about my death unless it's for entertainment. If it's for entertainment, he was quoted as saying, if you want to throw my body in a wood chipper and spray it into Harrods, that's fucking hilarious. So I, I would like to think uh, he would enjoy the conversation that we're having, specifically as long as we make it about how fucking terrible it is to work in the... Like, people will say depression killed Anthony Bourdain. Dane or you know who's uh, the service drug, yeah, or drug user you know no nah, man fucking his <laughs> life killed him John didn't kill Johnny the fucking chef did man um so when uh Bourdain was born his dad was a salesman at a New York City camera store and the floor manager at a record store but uh he loved music and loved records and his dad eventually became an executive for Columbia Records and then his mother uh was a writer and it eventually became the staff editor at the New York times. That's funny to think now, if you think of like an episode of parts unknown, yeah. which is probably, you know, like a kink song <laughs> playing over some very well thought out and well-written piece. Yeah. It's because yeah, he's his, just his parents. Yeah. His dad was uh exec at Columbia and his mom was the staff editor for New York times. So 
he has this perfect balance of music and writing. And, and just then, like his parents, he had a regular day job. Yeah. You know? He's like, all right, well, I'll just go cook food. That's a normal job. So um, Bourdain's paternal grandparents were French. I mean, given yeah, Pierre. by Pierre. Uh, and his paternal grandfather immigrated uh, to New York following World War One, And his dad spent summers in France as a boy and grew up speaking French. And uh, Bourdain spent most of his childhood in New Jersey, but still around his paternal grandparents. And that's where um, he, like, he kind of became jealous of his father because he, he felt this lack of parental supervision towards his classmates and his father and this freedom that they had in their homes where he always felt like he was surrounded by either his parents or his grandparents and felt, like, tied down. So that also played into his attitude on life, where once he became his own person, he became his own person. Yeah, he also was pretty outspoken that once he was able to leave the kitchen, we'll get to that in just a second, but when he was able to leave the kitchen, he was never coming back. Like, not to the kitchen specifically, but just to living that day-to-day grind in New York. He was like, I'm gonna, he was known to travel as much as humanly possible. And his love for restaurants came from his French grandparents, but also the fact that in the 60s when he was growing up, he and his friends would go to the movies, and after the movie, they would go to a favorite restaurant and sit down and eat and talk about the film. So he got this love for restaurants from a super young age. Well, it's also really important to bear in mind that we didn't really, I think restaurants are a funny thing in the history, uh, there's going to be a lot of this in this podcast. I apologize because this is just going to be a lot of blend. We will talk about Tony, I promise. But restaurants in America are a very new idea. They didn't mm-hmm. start until the beginning of the, the 19th century, or sorry, 20th century. And a really, really important thing to keep in mind is fine dining didn't come to the U.S. until the 70s. Yeah. Which means when he was, you know, a teenager, if he's going to go to, like, school, he's like, okay, where am I going to go? Well, at that point, culinary school probably sounded pretty cool to the same reason to him that cocktails were cool to me. Yes. Because when I started making cocktails when they were a brand new thing in the you know the turn of the 21st century, it was a really fun idea. It was different. It was contrarian. There was a lot of punk vibes in it because it was about telling people they were wrong, which punks love to do. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes sense to me that he would be like, I'm going to go into fine dining. That'll be the thing I do. So uh, in the 70s, while attending high school at uh, Dwight Englewood School, um, Bourdain met a girl by the name of Nancy Pekoski, uh, and he, funny enough, described her as a, quote, bad girl who was older than he was and, quote, part of a druggy crowd. <laughs> but they got uh, very close, and she was a year older than him. Okay. But he uh, fucking worked his ass off and graduated a year early so he could graduate with her. How romantic. And uh, they... Both went to Vassar College. Uh, Vassar College. Vassar. Vassar? Sorry. Vassar College. You guys, he's from the Midwest. I'm from the Midwest. I know nothing about New York. You you should hear how they say some of the words they say around here. Um, They say Versailles, Versailles. We do say Versailles. shout it. It's weird. Yeah. Um, So they had just started admitting men. It was like brand new to them. They were Mm -hmm. a female-only school. So he follows her there and... Studies there between the ages of 17 and 19. And then that's when he was like, you know, the whole culinary industry is booming. Now, fine dining just got here. And he's like, the Culinary Institute of America, which is a super prestigious culinary school. Yeah, it's kind of the only, I mean, it's not the only culinary schools or culinary schools. But when we want to talk about like culinary colleges. Yeah. Like something you could feel like you have a master's degree in food. You go to the CIA. Yeah. Yeah. And not the CIA we're normally talking about. Sorry, the Culinary Institute of America. 
Uh, and it was just a 15-minute drive away. So they could still stay together. They, he ends up going there, and the couple ends up marrying in 1985. And they're married for two decades. They, they had a daughter, uh, but they did end up getting divorced in 2005. Okay. So they were married for 20 years, and then they ended up getting a divorce. But in 2007, um, he met Atavia Busia. Yeah. The MMA fighter. Yes, uh, who was an MMA fighter, and they had a daughter together in 2007, and that is when he started his television show. He was in the, the middle of his show, and he said that he was away from his family for 250 days of the year yeah. working on his TV show. Dude, that's nuts. I mean, that's a, yeah, that's over two-thirds of the year. And that's not, un, uh, to be clear to those at home, I mean, that's a TV show traveling schedule. If you were, say, like a representative for a spirits company or if you did uh, what my partner does, which is um, like advocacy work and you do a lot of large events and stuff, I would say she's gone probably about 200. Uh, like when things are full tilt, she's gone about 200 days a year. Yeah. Because yeah? there'll be, you know, week on, week off. I mean, we're about to leave for two weeks mm -hmm. just to go do a thing. When you're in this industry, you know, there's sort of two ways to do it. You can either... Um, you know, his TV show obviously takes you all over the place, but it should be clear to people that that's not that uncommon in our business. Um, and that sort of shooting and traveling schedule. When I worked for Road Soda, which is a large productions company where we did draft cocktails for VIP programs at music festivals, I didn't have a lease. Mm -hmm. I didn't live anywhere because I was traveling 365 days. But that being said, there's also a lot of us that don't have partners and don't have kids and don't have families because, uh, as you've probably heard any um, hospital worker call them day walkers, regular people, you know, it's really hard to keep a schedule. It's hard to be a mom or a dad if you go to bed at six in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. So him being gone even for that, I mean... I know that a lot of people lament that that was probably one of the things that led to his suicide and his sadness, which I don't, I absolutely don't argue with. I'm confident that, that it probably did play a role. However, if he had been a full-time chef, he would have been away from home, honestly, just about as much. Because yeah. like a chef, they don't go anywhere, but they spend 16 hours at work, so it's not like they're at home. He would have been just as busy. It was probably frustrating because he was probably like, well, shit, I get to leave the restaurant. Because, you know, when his book came out, he when Restaurant Confidential came out, there was a movie made from it. There was a lot of stuff. And that's how he got No Reservations, his first show on yeah. CNN. And originally, yeah, that show... Uh, Starts in 2006, 2007, and it's just him and a light camera crew, just two people trying to figure it out. And, uh, you know, that probably seemed like, oh, shit. Well, because he went, you know, there's a there's a clip of him. Um, if you guys haven't watched Roadrunner, it's definitely worth it. It uh, I think it's a, a pretty nice portrait of the man. Uh, it shows a pretty good side of him. I mean, I don't know him all that well. I met him once. Oh, yeah. So there's a scene in Roadrunner where uh, he receives a phone call about his book, making it to the best. Uh, the New York Times bestseller list, and basically overnight he's doing Oprah, he's doing interviews, he's doing all this stuff. There's, you know, Bradley Cooper plays him in Kitchen Confidential, and there's, like, all this stuff that comes out, and it leads to his show. And I think it was a whirlwind that maybe he didn't anticipate because when you're in that position, I just try to think of myself, uh, Bravo came to us when we were in Hong Kong and pitched the idea of doing a reality show with us, and it sounded like a shitload of work. It sounded like a very invasive process where they were with us all the time. And fortunately, it didn't work out. But in his shoes, he was probably like, I am a tenured chef who's busy as fuck. 
I really want to be able to spend time with my family. I'm going to ride this book thing. And they're like, well, you want to do a TV show? And he's like, oh, yeah, shit, that'll be even easier. Mm -hmm. And then it's not. It's significantly worse. It takes up even more time, and it's less rewarding. Yeah. Um, I know personally, like, just the strain that it'll put on relationships. Uh, A friend of mine started his own restaurant, and, I mean, he's there 85 to 90 hours a week. And he he just... uh, both of them just announced yesterday that they're getting a divorce. Yeah, because like they just—he's gone all the time, and she works from home, and it's just—it's not feasible. Yeah, it's untenable. Those relationships. There's a lot of people who open a bar or restaurant as a couple, and within a year or two that they ha- have opened it, they split because it just becomes—and it's usually people who aren't used to the the industry. You yeah, know, they're people who who think that it's going to be like having a regular job or anything like that. It requires so much attention and so much time that that's just not how it works. But uh, I think Tony probably knew that, but that had to be very frustrating and difficult. Sorry, continue. Uh, so he and Busia actually split in uh, 2016. And in the same year, while filming Parts Unknown, uh, the Rome episode, he met Italian actress uh, Asia Ar- Argento. Argento. Yeah. yeah. Um, which you guys have probably seen her dad's movies. They're very hyper-violent movies. Yeah. Uh, and she is the Dario. one that's going to play a big part. In uh, the rest of this episode. Yeah, this has all been sort of a lead up to when he meets Asia Argento because Asia Argento uh, is, until Tony Bourdain, Tony was a mouthy, real deal chef who told the world how it worked after his restaurant closed and he was pissed off about it. So he decided to not lie about it anymore. And when everybody found out he was telling the truth, they wanted him to tell the truth about everywhere else. So he did that. And he did it for a number of years. And then he meets Asia Argento and everything starts to change very rapidly. He met Asia in 2016. He'd be dead by the end of 2018. Yep. So that's a pretty fast clip for a guy who's already in his 50s. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I say that as somebody, I want to make it clear. My mother died a decade ago. My dad got remarried. He did it in a classy fashion. Everything's been super cool. But I definitely understand how... um, like divorced, I guess you could just look at the fucking January sixth Capitol insurrection to see how divorced dads behave. But you know, you know, I feel like there's like a there's like a twice divorced dad energy there. I feel there a lot of what was said about their relationship seemed to indicate that he was like swinging for the fences with this yeah. one. I know someone who got uh, remarried two weeks after their divorce got final. <laughs> oh goddamn! Yep. Have they are they still married to that person? Yes. Okay. Well, that how has it been longer than two weeks? Uh, it's been a couple of years. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, this time. Third marriage. Um, <laughs> that time's the charm. So uh, in October 2017, Argento uh, told an article for The New Yorker that she was sexually assaulted by Harvey Weinstein in the 90s. Criticized for her account in Italian media and politics, she moved to Germany um, from Italy because she said that Italy had a victim-blaming culture. And that she just didn't feel safe there. Which is pretty rich coming out of her. Uh, we'll get into that yep. in a minute. But, yeah. And, and she was one of the early uh, voices. Now, obviously, we this is not the opportunity to leave a comment and be like, ha-ha, me too. No, no, listen, listen. That's not what we are saying. We support and listen to all victims. However, in this case, you had somebody who v- was a very early adopter to um, the Me Too movement. Adopter to er the Me Too movement might be the most man thing I could say that, like, Jesus, no. She was uh, one of the first people to speak up and say that I have been assaulted by Harvey Weinstein, something that absolutely happened. It happened for decades and decades. Absolute monster Harvey Weinstein. And he's he's like... um, 
he's such a like filth golem. Yeah. You know, he just looks so much like the piece of shit that he is. He's like he Steve look, Bannon. He looks like a caricature. Yeah, he's like rotten on the outside yeah. too. It's crazy. It's like uh, when the Sith, the yeah, yeah, the yeah. evil corrupts your <laughs> yeah. look. It's exactly it's uh it's what happened, it's when Sidious just became the emperor, you know? Yeah. And all that force lightning has just like fucking ravaged his face. That is what Steve Bannon looks like. Yeah. Yeah, he looks like a Sith Lord, but like a real sad dying one. He's just missing the red and yellow eyes. He's got the ball sack head, but he's just missing the red and yellow eyes. <laughs> well, he's got the jaundice. He just needs the, <laughs> the red in his eyes. But yeah, so uh, there were... <sighs> Sorry. Yeah, no, so uh, Asia delivered a speech on May 20th of 2018, following the 2018... Uh, I always get it wrong. Uh, is it Kane's Film Festival? Canes. Or Cons? Sugar Canes. Raisin Canes. Raisin Canes Film Festival. <laughs> uh, it's Con. Con, okay. Uh, calling the festival Weinstein's Hunting Ground. <laughs> And, um, again, reiterated that uh, Weinstein took advantage of her when she was 21. Which we don't doubt. Yeah, no, not at all. But uh, she added uh, this quote. She said, quote, and even tonight, sitting among you, there are those who still have to be held accountable for their conduct against women. And Bourdain was very vocal in supporting her during all this. I mean, his friends, his crew, everybody said that she was, like, the most in love he had ever been. He was, like hopelessly devoted to her, which obviously now we can look back on and be like, maybe that was a bad thing, but he was willing to go to bat for anything. So with this sort of thing, he was putting on his armor. Yes. Um, so that brings us to August of 2018 when, uh, Jimmy Bennett, a, uh, an actor came forward and said when, uh, in 2013, when he was 17 and Asia was 37, they were working on a movie together and she sexually assaulted him. And uh, it, of course, took headlines because she was uh, very vocal in the Me Too movement. Well, yeah, I mean, at the same time as her saying, you know, I was, Weinstein attacked me, which, again, we believe. I, I think that Weinstein definitely did that. The dude's a piece of shit. And, it, you know, if you go after 30 people, the 31st, you know, I'm just, I, he definitely did that. But, uh, yeah, she then was accused of sexual assault, of sexually assaulting uh, not just an underage person, but someone who was underage and working for her. He mm. was cast in a film she was directing. Yeah, um, she played his mother, and, um, of course, he being the son, and they throughout all the different, like, filming and uh, publicizing and stuff like that, they would refer to each other as mother and son. And, like, they said, uh, a lot of people that were on the crew and stuff said that their relationship seemed off and just kind of weird, but they just took it as, like, people doing method acting and just being kind of strange. And dude, they're being kind of weird. And the other guy turned to him and was like, they're all kind of weird. But in August of 2018... um, Anthony actually paid Jimmy Bennett $380,000 in a settlement for his silence. Yeah. So Asia could avoid negative publicity for the alleged sexual assault. Yeah, to put put a kibosh on it, to silence it, which does not, by any means, make it seem like it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. We were, we were talking earlier. I mean, we've talked about it in a couple different episodes now of... If you walk up to someone... It's the poison drink paradox. It's the poison drink paradox. If you hand someone a drink, and they're like, oh, thanks, and you go, that's not poisoned, they're going to think it's poisoned now. Yeah, yeah, they so have to. if you allegedly commit a crime, 
And your response is, well, here's a bunch of money, so you shut the fuck up. And it should be made clear that she didn't really handle any of this. Rose McGowan, her good friend Rose McGowan, handled most of the PR stuff, including the PR stuff after her whole thing is fucking weird. She likes to, she's already such a, just feel free to Google. I'm not going to get myself in any trouble here, but she has some very cringy clips if you want to take a gander yeah. at those. She has a tendency to do things the wrong way. But she spoke out here, and she also spoke out after Anthony's death on behalf of Asia. And it's very uncomfortable to me in both of these situations because these are very, very important situations for you to be clear, concise, honest, and transparent about. Mm -hmm. And your friend is talking about it on Twitter. Yeah. That doesn't seem like the right way to find a resolution here. It just seems like a smokescreen. And then on top of that, it's not any more convincing that something didn't happen. If you're going, oh, no, no, nothing, nothing happened. Well, didn't your boyfriend just pay him $400,000? Yeah, but that's because nothing happened. Nothing is worth $400,000? Dude, <laughs> if nothing is worth $400,000... I got a like a cash or a check I need to cash. Yeah. Yeah, because that's that's absolute bullshit. Hey, she did nothing to me too. Can I also have yeah, some money? She also did nothing to me. <laughs> Give me half a million dollars. Um, so this brings us to one of the different um points in what is now going to slide into conspiracy territory. Yeah, well, because, I mean, it has been the whole time. We just wanted to give a greater context to these things because nothing else we've said leading up to this has been untrue. Yes. Some of what we're going to say after this is going to be speculation. So just buckle up. We're not journalists. No one except Philip DeFranco on YouTube is. <laughs> so don't worry about it. We're not experts and neither are you. So uh, while all this is going on, um, Morgan Neville, uh, he is the director of Roadrunner. And he is, of course, documenting all of this. And he told the Wall Street Journal, he's saying, quote, I'm not saying Asia caused his suicide. Suicide is a private and I think selfish act. But what I'm trying to do is paint a picture of the different factors in Bourdain's life at the time of his death. I want to just take a quick second to also. Suicide isn't selfish. Yeah. You're allowed to do whatever you want with your life, including ending it. It's not selfish. That's the same thing as saying that putting your pants on is selfish. Did he have kids? Does that complicate it? Yes, absolutely. But it's no more selfish than any other decision he needs to make. The man, if he did in fact kill himself, which we are definitely speculating today that he did not, I don't think that it's fair to call it a selfish act. That's yeah. like a, that's projecting in a way that's really unnecessary. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to say that real quick. Uh, he also said that um, there were many factors at the time, and it said that he had become much more manic and much more depressive throughout the years. Which is weird because when he was, I'll give my experience because I met him during this time period. Um, but what I will say is in all the interviews that he gave leading up to that, he said that Asia made him happier than he had ever been, mm -hmm. that he was finally happy. And this is a dude who knows very well when he is and isn't happy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, again, ask any chef before, I don't know, honestly, before they're drunk or, or, or off their shift, yeah. how they feel. He joked, you know, that chefs all drink. Uh, what what did he say? Chefs all drink because we have to serve you people or something. But, yeah. it's, you know, that's true. It's true. The, that shit's hard. So I'm only saying that because I think this dude's got a pretty damn good idea how he's doing. Yeah. When you're in this industry, you got to do, like, mental health checks on a daily basis. I once lost a friend who was a bartender because I wasn't able to check in on his suicide attempts often enough. Let that shit sink in. Mm -hmm. Let that sink in. So these... These jobs can be tough, but I trust the guy when he says he was feeling better. So if he says he's feeling better, but everybody else says he was more manic, uh, I wonder what that 
manic what? Was it that he was happy for once, you know? Because yeah. there's two very different stories being told. Oh, yeah. And one of them, while maybe not the most reliable narrator, is the fucking guy we're talking about. Yeah. So, I don't know. It, it, maybe she made him miserable. Maybe she made him happy. I wouldn't, I couldn't imagine that all of this stuff made anybody happy, though. Even if it, even if he felt like she didn't do anything wrong, he'd probably be even more angry then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he's, you know, she's being attacked. Sorry, continue. So, uh, the film also addresses Asia as one of these factors, uh, and a couple of his friends came out, uh, one being Josh Holm, said yeah. that Bourdain was actively searching for something, quote, feral and wild when he began dating Asia. And it's such an inland empire Josh Holm thing to say. And another one of his friends, Allison Mosshart, uh, revealed that Bourdain told her in an email that he knew his relationship with Asia would, quote, end very, very badly. Yeah, but he probably didn't think I'm going to kill myself. Yeah, that's I true. I think he just knew that this was going to be a handful. Yeah, um, yeah, and another one of his friends said, quote, the people in his life could see he was falling in love and developing what seemed to be a singular focus on the Italian actress, and a bunch of people, including his crew, which caused some serious tension. Okay, yeah, so here's where I'll talk about my yeah. thing a little bit. Asia was brought in to uh, direct a couple episodes of Parts Unknown. Uh, I met Anthony Bourdain while they were shooting Parts Unknown in Hong Kong. I lived in Hong Kong at the time. I ran one of the world's best bars. And two of my good friends uh, ran the bar and worked at the bar, respectively, at Happy Paradise. Happy Paradise is a restaurant. It's an awesome restaurant. If you're ever in Hong Kong, make sure to go to Happy Paradise. It's a uh, restaurant that's owned and um, chefed by Mei Chow. Mei Chow is one of the most talented chefs I've ever met in my entire life. She's easily the number one Chinese chef around. And I got to meet her very hungover one day, sitting on the... I was sitting at my brand new bar top. It's like marble, and it's humid as hell in Hong Kong. So it was nice and cold, and I was hungover, and I had my head down. And she was cooking food for us that day in our alleyway. This is the best chef in China. (laughs) And she's cooking food in our alley. She's cooking wings, and she's like... She's got uh, wings, and she's making. Uh, she's very well known for the types of buns she does. And she brought them up to me, set one on each side of me, kissed me on the back of the head, and said, "Welcome to Hong Kong." <laughs> Mei Chow is like one of the greatest. That gives me goosebumps just telling that story. Mei Chow is one of the greatest human beings alive. So May owns Happy Paradise, and Anthony wanted to come to Happy Paradise. It's a very counterculture place. It's cool as hell. It's very like '80s China in a way that nobody wants to talk about. It's like really poppy and like kind of weird in the same way that we look towards the eighties or the nineties, that sort of nostalgia isn't necessarily in Asia. Yeah. Happy paradise is that I know I'm kind of talking about this, but this is going to be a flowery episode. Like I said, this is a personal yeah. issue guys. So anyway, that they came to town. They also, I at the time lived on what's known as the dark side of Hong Kong, which is not Hong Kong, but across the, the Bay. And I lived in Sham Shui Po. The market that I lived above is called the Night Market. Right next to that is the Ladies Market and every bit of good food that you go to when you're a tourist. Tony shot at the restaurant in the bottom of my building and at the restaurant right next to the one in the bottom of my building. He also shot at the noodle shop, Caddy Corner, from the bar and at Happy Paradise. So we got to see him quite a bit, and it was fun because, you know, like, we were in in town. There's a WhatsApp group chat for all of the bars and restaurants, and these selfies with Tony just keep popping up. Everybody's seeing, getting their experience, meeting Anthony Bourdain as he's coming around town. Everybody has these great things to say. And then he was at this big party that they shot. They did the rap party at Happy Paradise. Um, and yeah, it was a weird vibe. It was a weird vibe. Asia is, uh, I probably watch my shit when I say this, but she seems a little controlling. She seems very watching. She's very, um, 
She's one of those people that like tries to run the room uh, at all times, no matter what, very yeah. much center of attention type of person. Anthony was very laid back, super chill, was already kind of a little drunk and was just like having a nice time. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody on the crew, I'm trying to remember, it, somebody in the comments is going to slay me for this because the director that they had on that episode as well, who they publicly told was directing, but Asia was the one actually directing the episode, is also the guy who did Chunking Mansions and all his really great Chinese movies, the English director. Um, and he was there too. Everybody was really cool, but there was definitely, I got two vibes from it. One, uh, Anthony Bourdain <laughs> isn't a sellout. He's just trying his best. Uh, but he didn't seem depressed enough to kill himself yeah. at all, at all. But I know what I'm saying. I know, I know, I know. I know that doesn't necessarily mean anything. And Asia did, She there's a weird vibe there. I don't know how to describe that better. I'm not uh, a crystals and magic kind of guy, but I have been in the bar industry long enough that I know sometimes when somebody walks in the room, you get a vibe. Yeah. And you definitely get a vibe around Asia Argento. And I can say that as somebody who met her. And you know what's fucking crazy is I met Tony. He was... I mean, that Hong Kong episode was made, put in the can, put out, and he died like a week later. I think it was two months maybe from when we had met him to when he had died. And it was fucking crazy because my whole career, I was kind of like, uh, Anthony Bourdain. And then I met him and I was like, oh, you know what? Fair enough. I was wrong. That dude's really cool. And then he died. And it yeah. was like, fuck, man. <laughs> it felt so personal. Um, Bourdain, uh, during this time. <laughs> Never meet your heroes. You'll kill them. <laughs> he, he was very vocal saying that, he felt like he destroyed his relationship with his ex-wife and his daughter. Yeah. And he was very vocal talking about how he wanted to quit Parts Unknown. And uh, some of his friends were saying it seemed like he was burning bridges left and right during this time. Yeah, yeah. that was That's in the, the film as well. They, they, his crew said that he was... Like, the, the decision to have Asia direct in Hong Kong was sort of just sudden. Yeah. Yeah, and the crew didn't really know, and they got usurped, and there was a lot of tension. Yeah, uh, he said that... Or his crew said that when he hired her to direct the show's Hong Kong episode, it really upset them, and she basically upended a process for the show that they had been perfecting for years. Yeah, and you know the the film Roadrunner, you really should watch it. It's definitely worth it. They do a good job of explaining how that came to be because when Tony started, like the rest of us, he was very shy and kind of awkward. That's the thing you should know about chefs, guys. First of all, pretty much every TV chef you know from Joanna Gaines to whoever the fuck is a hack. They don't know how to cook and they don't cook for a living. In case you haven't noticed, that's not what they're doing. They're showing you how to cook for a living. And to be clear, I might sound like a prick, but professionals care about this stuff. They actually do the shit for a living. We would rather you don't pretend you know how to make that meal and you just come in and enjoy it in our restaurant. We'll take care of you. It'll be fantastic. I think that the desire to like change some of those things on the fly. The guy liked chaos. He was obviously very comfortable with it. And I think that comes from working in the hospitality industry. It comes from being willing to deal with constant changes and stuff. And I don't, I just don't think it was necessarily emblematic that he was, I'm not going to say, I was going to say that he wasn't burning bridges, but what the fuck do I know? I can't say that. I mean, his friends would know better than I do, but it just doesn't, it just seems like he wanted something new. Yeah. Um, so Five days before his death, um, Bourdain was in France filming another episode, the the last episode that they would film, and his friends said that he became furious because at that time, tabloid photos that implied that Asia was cheating on him with a French reporter uh, started popping up, and that was a big point of contention. He like People would reach out to him and bring it up, and he would tell them, that he didn't want to talk about it. He would get very, like, agitated and angry when it was brought up. Yeah. And uh, people just kind of let sleeping dogs lie with that one, and they just kind of dropped it. It will be brought up later. Yeah, I mean, he was a, he didn't like public attention. Again, mm. despite what 
it seems like with these TV chefs and how cool they are, a lot of real chefs are very shy people. They're very, very shy people. They like playing D&D. They like sitting in a dark room and being left alone. Yeah. They like to complain. They like to smoke. But, you know, like a lot of them, they're not uh, – we see it all happen in the bar industry all the time. You see people who are, like, good bartenders or very good at, like, the actual logistics stuff, and then they get asked to do a job where, like, they need to be the face of something, and they're just terrible at it because mm. they're not entertainers. Yeah. Yeah. And in the kitchen, at least with the bar, we have to serve people to their face. So it's a little bit more of an entertainment aspect. Nobody's watching you dance in the kitchen. Yeah. You know what I mean? Very few restaurants do you eat on the line. Yeah. Yeah. Chipotle. Um, <laughs> You're not supposed to. <laughs> just I, I just stand there. The right now. Yeah. Can I, I get some of this, please? <laughs> Yo, can I get a taco bowl? And I just put my hand out. Hey, uh, can I get another burrito bowl, please? I brought my own <laughs> tostada. Uh, so Frida's, please. Um, <laughs> so in early June of 2018, um, they were working on this episode in France. And his friend Eric was working along with him. Chef Eric Repair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I uh, was working alongside him on this episode. And on June 8th. Someone who became his friend who was like his idol. Yes. Yeah. Uh, realized that he didn't see Bourdain at dinner. And now it was breakfast and Bourdain still wasn't there. And that's not, that's two meals. A chef never misses two meals. Yeah. No matter how hungover, drunk, whatever, a chef never misses two meals. You can miss one. Two? Two, yeah. yeah. Every, Something's oh yeah everybody wrong. misses one. Yeah. Meal. Every every chef or bartender misses one meal a day. They never miss two. So uh, Eric then goes up to his hotel room, um, trigger warning once again, yep. uh, finds Anthony hanging in his hotel room, and uh, immediately calls the police. Uh, the... Uh, autopsy said that his body bore no signs of violence and that the suicide appeared to be an impulsive act. And they also disclosed, they did a toxic, uh, toxicology report and said there were no narcotics in his system. And the only uh, trace that showed up was a therapeutic non-narcotic medication that he was taking uh, for some body aches and pains. Sure, yeah. And uh, his body was... Uh, well, I mean, I don't know how to break it to everybody, but even if he had relapsed and blown a couple lines or shot up or something. He wouldn't have killed himself. Mm -hmm. Heroin doesn't make you suicidal. It puts you asleep. Yeah. Um, Bourdain's body was then uh, cremated in France on June 13th, and his ashes were returned to the States two days later. Yeah, they were given to his brother with all of his travel stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, this is when tabloids and news sources and everything kind of blew up. Yeah. Because uh, uh, just days after... Um, Asia's sister in the Me Too movement, uh, Rose. Rose McGowan. Um, was kind of took to the internet and was saying that, like, hey, uh, Asia had nothing to do with this. Uh, she rebuked all speculation that her and Bourdain were having relationship troubles prior to his suicide. And uh, she even released uh, a letter to the media claiming that the two of them were actually each other's rocks during... Other uh, individual struggles with depression and suicidal thinking. Um, she went as far to say that Asia was his, uh, what was it, guardian angel? Protector. Protector, yes. Yeah, she also said something incredibly distasteful about him. And I'm going to say this as somebody who's lost friends and family to suicide. And as uh, somebody who has depression, knows people with depression, um, she said that uh, do you have the the direct quote about yeah. how our, is she basically what she said was that Asia was able to overcome depression and Tony couldn't. Yes. And I want it. God, it just makes me mad just thinking about it. Go this, ahead and say the whole quote. This is the quote. She said, uh, quote, and through a lot of this uh, last year, Asia did want the pain to stop. Thankfully, she did the work to get help. 
so she could stay alive and live another day for her and her children. Anthony's depression didn't let him. He put down his armor, and that was very much his choice, his decision, not hers. His depression won in the end. That's the most fucking disgusting way. The guy just died. He yeah. just died. And that's what you have to say about him. It's disgusting, man. To say that, oh, well, you, well Tony died because he's a pussy. He's yeah. a coward. He uh, he just uh, he took the coward's way out. That's what he did. That sounds it's like the most toxic masculinity uh, take on that, which is pretty rich coming from Rose McGowan, of all people. Um, and, yeah, dude, I... I don't know. That just that's brutal. That's a shitty way to say it. And I think it's pretty rich again that she was the one speaking. Why wasn't Asia saying this? Yeah. You know, uh, she then went and said that to address the tabloids with the French journalist. Oh yeah. Didn't she say that they have like an open and free relationship? Yeah. That's she, so fucking gross. Because what if Tony did kill himself out of depression? You know, and he killed himself because he was like, you know what. I was so fucking stoked and I love this new woman, but then it turned out that it's the same old shit that I, I'm never actually going to be happy. It's she's cheating on me. It's fucking the same old shit. No one cares about me. I'm fucking 60. Why am I still doing this? I got maybe 20 more years of pain. I'm just going to kill myself. Yeah. From that perspective, I, I definitely understand where he, where he would have been coming from. So to say that it's bullshit and that he's a pussy because She's basically saying she's rebuffing his suicide by saying he was too much of a coward to deal with the fact that you guys totally had an open relationship anyway. Yeah. Like, this is none of your stuff to be discussing. It's not, I know we're sitting here talking about it on a podcast, but this is a slightly different situation. Mm -hmm. You're a celebrity going to bat to speak on behalf of these people. It's gross. So, this is where uh, we're now in full conspiracy territory. Yes. So, uh, he has passed away, and people are. People are spectacle. They're they're speculating. Uh, the big theory that came out of this is that he did not, in fact, kill himself, and he was uh, murdered due to his very public opinions on Harvey Weinstein and um, just Hollywood in general. And the Clintons. And the Clintons. Yeah, this is where, for the, the cues in our crowd, this is where you perk your ears up because we are going to talk about the Clintons, and we're not going to be nice about it. Although, to be clear, I want to make a, a firm stance on this podcast. We don't like either of the Clintons. Mm -mm. We're not like. <laughs> no. Um, so, a lot of people also speculate that uh, a reason that he got killed because of this was because he was so uh, willing to be vocal towards the sexual assault of elites, uh, but turned a blind eye against his own girlfriend. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's the interesting story, right, is... There's this like a grand conspiracy that he's very he's very vocal that Weinstein is this predator and this animal, which is true. However, the unfortunate part is that his wife, girlfriend, potentially you know life partner, yeah, um, open relationship haver, uh, potentially did this thing, and then you know. It's not like that was the narrative in the household exclusively, right? Like, she's going to stick to her guns. She's going to say this shit didn't happen, which now he's getting gaslit as well and being told, well, this didn't happen. And he's going, well, but don't you have to believe the victims? And she goes, well, yeah, you believe the female victims. Don't believe the male victims. Yeah. He's lying. He's lying to take me down because I said something. You know, there's just, like, these layers of conspiracy. And it, I, if he was looking for something wild and feral, he sure fucking found it. So, uh... Three months before he died, uh, Bourdain did an interview that then got released after he died uh, where he was very uh, vocal and sharply criticized the Clintons. And what he said was, in the interview, he called the former president a piece of shit entitled rapey, gropey, grabby, disgusting. Uh, and the way that he and she destroyed these women 
and the way that everyone went along with it and they're all blind to it is screamingly apparent hypocrisy and venality. Yeah. And uh, he went as far as saying that uh, the Clintons, their response with Weinstein's sexual harassment, who was their friend and political donor, he said uh, people were really hoping that she, as in Hillary, would come out with a, I don't know, let's just say come out with something different is the quote that he said. I immediately tweeted my disappointment, very much shaped by the way I in what I saw around me. And I will tell you, I was really fucking frightening, the reaction to that, you know? I voted for her. Yeah. And so he was very, very um, vocal about how he thought that Bill Clinton was a piece of shit and a sexual abuser, and he was very disappointed in the way that they carried themselves about not only his sexual abuse, but about Weinstein's sexual abuse. Well, and also with the way that he was vehement about it, a lot of people have now, since the Epstein files have been released, have to wonder, well, did he... Anthony maybe knows something about the Clintons tied to Epstein because, mm-hmm. you know, calling him a rapey, grabby piece of shit. It's one thing to lie about getting a consensual blowjob. That's a different thing. Yeah. He clearly knew something else. He had, you know, there was other information afoot. Um, and once that interview got published, um, former porn star Jenna Jameson Woo! tweeted uh, an, a link to the interview. I'm telling him. I'm telling him. Uh, I... The people in here probably don't care about this at all, but you want to know how I felt old today? My son didn't know who Jenna Jameson was. He called her Jenna James or Jenna Johnson. He didn't know her name, and I was like, you mean Jenna Jameson? And he was like, yeah, whoever. And I was just, my heart fell apart. I got to go watch Pam and Tommy again. (laughs) Um, Well, she tweeted a link to the interview uh, with just one line that said, cross the Clintons, get suicided. <laughs> um, so that, of course... Hey, she's an authority on this. It's like Jenny McCarthy <laughs> and, and Flat Earth or uh, autism and vaccines or whatever her thing is. Uh, so that was just one thing that like really sparked this controversy. That and um, the New York editor-in-chief, David Remnick, uh, came out when he posted the article, the, the New Yorker article all about Weinstein... He said that Bourdain uh, went to the New Yorker with stories and allegations towards Weinstein that he kind of collected from a bunch of people, brought them to the New Yorker, and when they were working, uh, the editor-in-chief got death threats. Like, the New Yorker, just as a whole, got a ton of death threats from people. And after he was very public about, like, hey, people are calling in, telling telling us that if we publish the story, they're going to kill us or we should kill ourselves, blah, blah, blah. Um, Bourdain called the editor and said that, quote, everyone had known about Weinstein's uh, predation for too long. And he said, I'm not a religious man, but I pray you have the strength to run this story. Which is why at the very beginning, when I told you that he was very adamant talking about how his family wasn't religious and how he wasn't religious and he doesn't believe in a higher power. That's how important this was to him. Yeah. That he said, I pray you have the strength to run this story. And the thing that I alluded to at the beginning about how I found these weird connections is anyone that kind of spoke up about this at the time and ended up dying from what was apparently a suicide, it was from hanging. Jeffrey Epstein, hanging. Anthony Bourdain, hanging. And and Epstein's was the dollar store prison library hanging, too. mm -hmm. Shoelace off a doorknob. And uh, Kate Spade. Yeah. At the exact same time, who was also very vocal with the Me Too movement, found dead, hung herself. Well, and, you know, the 
we can make jokes about McAfee, but he was the dude fucked a dolphin. Like he was pretty well or a whale or whatever. He was very well in tune with the underbelly of the mm-hmm. world, especially the sexually deviant side. Yes. Just saying. Also hung himself, himself in, in prison. June. Yep. Right after he said he wasn't going to. Yep. Yeah. Um, well, he probably just got tied up in the in the hammock strings, you know? Um, <laughs> no, so it's just, it's something that we don't have all the information. We'll probably never have all the information. No, but it's weird how quick it fell out of the public eye. Mm-hmm. It's, I've worked, you know, I, I did go to journalism school. I have worked in newsrooms, and I can tell you that it's interesting to see the way that things come up and disappear nowadays because it used to just be, your job was to tell the headline, tell the story, tell them what happened. And if there are any updates down the road, make sure that those get included. Yeah. And that was it. And now with the 24-hour news cycle and stuff, you have these stories that just run nonstop. And we didn't, I mean, yeah, for a little bit, but this was four, you know, four years ago, almost mm-hmm. four years ago. So three and a half years ago. And it was Anthony Bourdain. Yeah. And it was just very quickly just, oh, yeah, he just, yeah, he must have just out of the blue just killed himself. Yeah. Duh. There's he was depressed, killed himself. All right, anyways. And, so. and I do think the reason that we've emphasized so much about how hard the industry is is because a lot of us get written off like this. I think a lot of people in this industry could uh, die of questionable causes, and people would say, oh, man, probably killed himself. Or, oh, he's just... And how fucking dark is it that that's how we all look at each other and know? Like, we all know that the thing we do is brutal enough that, yeah, sometimes we just quit. Sometimes we just... Hang ourselves, and that's fucking terrible, man. And the worst tip part, your waiters. The worst part is like people. You'll have people in the industry. You'll have people like Bourdain, or even lesser so people that you just know that are line cooks or chefs or anything like that, kill themselves. And people's responses are immediately to villainize them. Yeah, and like, well, they were drug addicts. Yeah, or cool, they they're call, still fucking people. Or they call them selfish, or they do whatever. Yeah, and it's like, yeah, but. Let's. Why don't we give them the time and the respect, and maybe take a moment to see why that decision was made, why that happened. And what's crazy is that, you know, I don't want to get into it because it'll get too personal. But over the past couple of years, we've lost a lot of good people in this business, and we lost a lot of them to self harm. And it sucks so much that that's considered the cost of doing business to give people fucking tacos and yeah. pasta. Why is that the cost of doing business? We are the people who feed people mm-hmm. and we get chewed through the most. I think Bourdain's problems, if they if Bourdain killed himself, I think those problems started the moment he picked up a knife and decided to become a chef. Yeah. And I think, you know, the dude learned the traditional French way. You know what that means, you guys? That means you get yelled at. It means you get stuff thrown at you. It means you get hurt. Yep. Yep. It's not a fucking nice way to learn. It's like going to Catholic school for it's Catholic culinary school. Yeah. They slap your hands, they yell at you. And there's a reason that a lot of the chefs, you know, still continue that chain of abuse because we get taught, and I did it for a long time, that the way you get respect is by demanding it and shouting at people. Look at Gordon Ramsay on the television. And I've met Gordon too. And Gordon's a really lovely man. He's a sweetheart. And he's playing a character. Yeah. But that character is so interesting to people. And that sucks, man. Why do you love watching that yelling and that brutality? Like, that's not how this is supposed to work. And let Anthony stand as an example of how you should look at the world, but Mm -hmm. also an example of what we do to the good ones. Yeah what this life will do to the really good people who are willing to stand there and say, yeah, man, I'll give you a hand. I know that it's raining outside, but I'm, I don't have an umbrella, but I'll help you anyway. Let me take care of you. And it kills him. Yeah. Um, just final thoughts really is if you've never worked in the service industry, I know I said it before, but 
stop treating the people who do as subhuman. It's killing us. We're superhuman. We have to we have to have two lives. We have to have enough patience to deal with you and then go home and still have bills and hobbies and people and every other fucking thing that you don't have to have. And I I told this to someone the other day cuz he was complaining about like, well, one of my favorite restaurants back home, they don't have any servers. And I was like, "Well, do you know what they pay?" He's like, "Well, I think minimum wage." And I told the guy. I said, Listen, minimum wage for a server in most states is $2.13. Enough to cover taxes. I I put it to him this way. I said, imagine if I told you to stand in a corner for 10 hours. Just stand in a corner for 10 hours. and At the end of that 10 hours, I handed you a $20 bill. You'd be pissed off. Now imagine doing everything that a server does in those 10 hours. Still being on your feet the whole time, but running around, taking care of people. All this stuff that servers do behind the scenes that you don't see when they're at the table, whether it be load 50 or like five gallon buckets from one place to another (laughs) of ranch. Yeah. Whether it be like taking the trash out multiple times when these bags weigh 30, 50 pounds. If you want, if you've never worked in a a bar restaurant and you want to know what it's like, there is a movie that will tell you it's called waiting and it's probably the most accurate restaurant yeah. movie ever made. That's really how it is for everybody. The ball showing game, that's a real thing. We all do it. It isn't sexual harassment. We just do it because it's the only fucking joy we have. Think about that. Think about how dismal yeah. our jobs are. And, like, imagine doing now doing all those things, still getting that $20 at the end. Maybe, maybe you made too many tips, and your yeah. employer is a piece of shit who says, well, you made your money in tips. I don't have to pay you anything. And then... While you're getting that, while you're being handed that $20, the people around you tell you you're not worth that $20. Yeah, and what's fucking crazy is they go, well, you just stand in a room for 10 hours. Yeah, but it's 10 hours of my goddamn life that I can't have back. It's not free. It's not my fault that my employer doesn't have anything for me to fucking do. You hear people, you know, uh, this is our end of the podcast tirade. Uh, We'll get, listen, did Tony kill himself? Possibly. If he didn't, was it probably a a Weinstein move or a Clinton move? Yeah, in all likelihood. Yeah, Definitely probably because he way. had he had dirt on these people. These people, as we now know, since he has passed, were significantly more connected and, uh, you know, well, I shouldn't say powerful. We always knew they were powerful, but they're significantly more connected than we thought, and everything was a lot dirtier than we thought. I mean, look, Melinda Gates has left Bill. Like, there's a lot yeah. of shit afoot here, and I hate to be one of those people, but I'm going to be one of those people right now because, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense, and Anthony was always one of the real ones, and they always, you go after the real ones first. Yeah. he's He was loud, he wasn't afraid, and I think if he didn't kill himself, which, man, I just struggle t- with the idea that he did, it just... It's so sudden. Like I said, I hate to be like, well, you know, so-and-so did it like this and so-and-so, but I can, I can pull up these examples and like, it just doesn't feel like how somebody kills themselves. Yeah. Especially someone who had a history with drugs. Yeah. This dude knew he could have relapsed. He could have done all kinds of shit. You, you don't have a history with drugs and know how easy it is to overdose and go, well, I'll hang myself. One of the most painful ways to kill yourself. Absolutely. And one of the, like, he was also very clear that when he died, he didn't want to fuss. He didn't want a funeral. He didn't want anybody to see his body. He didn't anybody. He's yeah. quoted as saying, I don't want anybody to even see my body. You think a guy who doesn't want anybody to have to clean up after him is going to do one of the messiest things you can do to die? No. no. If, t- if Tony wanted to kill himself, 
in a way that I think he would have done it. And again, please, I apologize if this offends you. If you know him, I don't mean anything by it. But in my mind, I would imagine the dude would jump into the ocean and never be found. Yeah, He doesn't seem like the type of guy to want enough attention to kill himself in the middle of his room and be like, look at me. Yeah. That feels he more disappeared. Like, it feels a lot more like a sign that was sent to somebody that said, I know what you're doing. I'm watching you. Yeah. That's what it feels like to me. But now that being said, yeah, man, the industry is brutal and it's really mean to everybody. I think the way that it treats people um, hasn't changed. I think it's gotten worse. And I think that you should be as nice as possible. I also think a lot more people should learn how to cook. I think yeah. you should know how to cook for yourself. If you spend, if going out to eat is how you regularly eat, you are doing it wrong. Restaurants exist because after the revolution in France, all of the kings and the royalty didn't have chefs working for them anymore, and those chefs had to go work somewhere else. So they offered that royal-like experience to anybody who wanted to come on into their little building. There you go. That's restaurants. That eventually makes its way here. That's a that's a really opulent thing. You got to remember this. I hate casual restaurants because it sends the wrong idea. It's like, I shouldn't serve you a burrito. You should know how to make yourself a burrito. If you go out and get a burrito, it better be fancy or purely out of convenience. And in America, I think a lot of people seek convenience so badly. You know, we want to eat around the globe. We got a lot of problems that we could go on for, you know, people who won't eat the same thing two days in a row, like stigma over leftovers and shit like that. There's all these weird ways that we eat. But I think one of them is that, you know, just eat, eat out less, cook for yourself more often. You want to honor somebody like Anthony Bourdain, eat at home, learn how to fucking cook. That's what he knew how to do. And it's one of the most important base things a human can do. I know how to do it. Not because it's what I have to do every day for work, but because it's cooking. I feed people. It also means that when I'm hungry and I want something, I can just go make it because I know how to make food. Yeah. There's like this, we're turning into these cul-de-sac people where we require all of these things, technology, you got to have the internet running. You got to have all these things going to keep us alive. I don't think that's really all that good of an idea. And I don't think Tony liked it either. Mm. Yeah. So if you want to, if you want to do something in the name of Anthony Bourdain, learn how to fucking cook. Go out to restaurants that do their best at what they do. Celebrate them. Go to Jimmy John's a little bit less. Yeah. Yeah. That's not, if you want to celebrate food, celebrate the people who make it and allow people who, you know how many fucking people, I know I'm tirade, but you know how many people, yourself included, that work at a place like Wix or work at a place like fucking, uh, you know, a chain place or a grocery store or wherever that have dreams of being chefs. Mm-hmm. They want to be cooking their food. They want to feed people. They want to have a relationship with their food and with the people that they serve it to. They want to be somebody that Tony Bourdain would want to come interview. But they're stuck working at McDonald's because the people would rather eat there than give another restaurant a chance. It's the people who say, well, I don't eat at fancy restaurants. My, my family's from Montana, and it's incredible how allergic they are to nice things. And yeah. I don't mean fancy things. I just mean things that are well-made. And it's purely because it's like, well, that's a that's a fancy restaurant. Yeah, the person who's in there has dedicated 30 years of their life to doing this at yeah. the highest level. You're going to get a really cool experience. It's yeah. not just expensive. It's, a you know, like people bitch about fine dining. That's how much his time is worth. If Caleb makes you an incredible dish and it's $300, that's because it cost him $300 worth of his creativity and time to get the shit done. And I think that stuff's really easy to forget about and we want such disposable food. But if you're going to have lunch today and it's not going to be something fancy, make it for yourself. I don't care if it's ramen. I don't care if it's a hot dog. Make it yourself. 
doing stuff yourself is a lot more important than I think any group of people in this country seems to think it is. Yeah. You know? Learn how to cook for yourself. I the we got all these fucking naked and afraid and baking shows and shit. We don't have a single show where it's just like, do you know how to make yourself a sandwich? If you wanted a Reuben right now, what would you do? No. You know? Anyway. I know you know. Fuck you. Yeah, you went to school for it. And Caleb went to school when he was in like high school for it. He was like, I'm going to be a chef. This is what I'm doing. Started school two weeks after graduating high school. That's crazy, man. Good for you. I, I don't like sitting around... Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Yeah, that's true. Speaking of which, I'm holding him up from his riddle. He's like, come on, you motherfucker. I got a question to ask him. We'll let you guys, I'll let you guys, you guys let us know what you think in the comments about what happened to Tony. Do you think he killed himself? Do you think it was Asia's fault? Do you think her influence in his life and on their relationship had a contributing factor? Do you think he did it because he was depressed? Do you think somebody did it to him? Was it the Clintons? Please, by all means, for especially the people who think it was the Clintons, leave a lot of comments. I, we really definitely we love reading those. Yeah, we want to see those comments big time. But with that said, we love you very much. Thank you for joining us. And uh, it is Caleb's favorite time of the podcast. It's riddle time. It's riddle time. So last week's riddle was, the things I bite, they do not bleed. I don't bite until you push me. I bring my victims together each time, but they'll come undone if you pull just right. What am I? A cat. A stapler. Oh, that's kind of the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Things I bite don't bleed because it's paper. Uh, don't bite until you push me. Push down. That makes sense. Uh, bring them together. But if you pull it just right, you can pull that staple right out. A little monster teeth. Everybody's favorite monster teeth. Uh, staple remover. This week's riddle is uh, a lot shorter. Um, <laughs> what is black when you buy it, red when you use it, and gray when you throw it away? Three. Wait. Avocado. (laughs) (laughs) Let us know what you guys think in the comments. We love you very, very much. And we will see. If you haven't, by the way, uh, two things. One, if you do feel suicidal, by all means, please, uh, there are a ton of resources. We'll leave some in the uh, description of this video so that if you are feeling that way, please feel free to call a a phone line or reach out to somebody. It's important to do so. I'm kind of stammering over this stuff, but it's just real. It's just very real. This isn't a sell. I just legitimately feel that way and also if you guys haven't uh weird segue but we're doing a little bi-weekly news show now it's pretty funny we give you the headlines we try to uh see what's funny about them it's basically the same sort of stuff we'd follow or we'd follow that we would cover on the show sort of what we're calling it tomorrow's conspiracies today so yeah check out caleb's weekend rapport there's going to be a little subscribe up in the corner for it if you want to check it out we love you very much and we will see you guys next week goodbye bye Oh, I go first. Oh, it's <laughs> <Yeah>. me. <laughs>